1 Samuel as we continue on. What we're doing is we're continuing the study on the judges, and we, in my mind it was like, okay, let's just stop with Judges chapter 21. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, the, the period of the judges and the office of a judge continues on with the man Samuel. He is described in 1 Samuel as, as chapter 7 verse 15 as the judge of Israel, and he is the leader. And remember what the judge was, they weren't the guys in the black robes that were saying, you're guilty, you're innocent. They could do that, but they were involved in sometimes military leadership, advising, revival. They had a wide role. They were a civil leader, a political, a religious leader that was involved with trying to help Israel to receive the blessings of God after they had rebelled. Judges is done, and we end up in that history going to 1 Samuel. Ruth is, is a part of that story of the period of Judges, and then we pick up historically, chronologically, right with 1 Samuel chapter 1. And in that story, we start picking up with the last of the judges, whose name is Samuel, who uh, is going to have tremendous impact. In fact, because of his impact, because of his influence, man, they do get revival in the nation. And because of his influence, it leads into the glory years of Israel under the kings, especially David and Solomon. And so when we talk about it, let's set the scene of 1 Samuel chapter 1 as we open up the book. It's still those dark days of the judges. It's still a period of time where they're having a lot of difficulties. If you go to chapter 3 and look at verse 1, and this covers a lot of time, uh, uh, a lot of the first few chapters come a, cover a, a short period of time. In chapter 3, verse 1, it talks about the child Samuel ministering unto the Lord, and it makes this statement. I'm not sure how your Bible reads as far as the words. It says, the word of the Lord was precious in those days in my King James. Does anybody have another rendering for the word precious? It was rare. Okay, that's the idea. It is something that it's not much. There wasn't revelation. There wasn't vision. There wasn't anything going. It's not the idea that they considered the Word of God priceless and wonderful. It's the idea that not many people have the Word of God. That it's kind of been lost to the population of Israel as a whole. And so they're not hearing much from the Lord at this period of time. In fact, there was a true story that I was reading about a gentleman, his name is Robert Evans, who goes into Poland and he's got a preaching ministry right after the war, World War II is over. So this is dated by a number of decades. And he goes in and he's scheduled to preach. And he's going to use an interpreter. He's going to preach to the Polish people there. And he gets to the center of the, the town hall or whatever it is that they're meeting. And he gets to that center of the, the community and he comes in and the place like this size is totally packed with people. No sitting room, no nothing. And there's still people outside. So he preaches through the interpreter, a very simple gospel message. And as he preaches the message and gives an invitation, it service lasts about an hour, dozens of people respond. So people are taking them out to the outside area and dealing with them and they dismiss the crowd. And he didn't know how this was going to happen, but then they let in the next crowd. And they did a whole service. He preached the message. They gave an invitation. People are responding. They dismissed everybody, and they let in another crowd of people. It went on for six hours straight, just preaching because the people were hungry for the Word of God. He says that then what happened was the most impacting situation is he was, they're done, he can't talk at all, his interpreter is exhausted, and they're leaving, and there's still people gathered around outside, but they just, they just can't go on any further. And so they're trying to walk through the crowd, and the interpreter is saying, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow. And one old man got right in there in, in Evan's face and said, please, 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 got him to stop. And then he went rambling on in his Polish dialect, and he turns, Evans turns to the interpreter and said, what's he saying? He said, he's got something that is very, very important to show you, and he wants you to, to see if you know what it is. 
And the man went, reached in his pocket, pulls out this cloth, and he unwraps it very, very carefully. It is something very important to him. And it's one page of paper. The paper has some torn edges, and it's obviously been ripped out of a book. It's not that the paper is so fragile, but it's just this man is valuing the paper. And through the interpreter, he asked, is this a page from the Bible? And Evans looks at it, and he recognizes as the man is just explaining a couple words, this is from Exodus. And he says, yes, it's God's word. The man starts crying. I have God's word. I have God's word. Is there more? And Evans tells him, yes, there's a whole bunch. And after that book, there's a number of other books. And the man said, I read this every day, and I always wonder, what's next? What comes next? For them, the word of God was rare. That's the way it is in Israel at the time that we are opening up and continuing in our study, but we open up 1 Samuel. They don't have Bibles in their laps. They don't have a Bible app. They don't have that opportunity. It's rare. So these are dark days. They're, they're trying to, those few people who are trying to figure out what God wants, this is unusual for them. They don't have a lot of revelation. This is a challenge for them. A lot of people, they don't even care if they don't have the Word of God because false religion, like we saw in the book of Judges, it's continuing. Chapter 7, look what happens. In chapter 7, and again, this is all just setting the scene for what we have. Samuel spake unto all the people, verse 3 of the house, and he says, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, put away the strange gods, that is the idols, and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, that is for Jehovah, and serve him only. And so here he's, Samuel's recognizing there's a lot of idolatry. There is a lot of paganism that has afflicted the people. And then to make it even worse, there is a set of priests that are leading the nation. Go back to chapter 2. And a lot of you are familiar with this. In chapter 2, the priest is, the high priest is Eli. And he has two boys. Remember their names? Hophni and Phineas, yeah, chapter 2. And they're supposed to be the leaders. The, they're the, the heir apparent to the high priestly throne. And here's what we read about them. It says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. Do you remember we mentioned this this morning? Sons of Belial could be those who are worthless. They are involved with immorality or idolatry. These guys were all of it. As it goes on, they knew not the Lord. And the priests, but they're, but they're serving in the tabernacle. They're the clergy of the day, but they don't know the Lord God. The priest's custom with the people was that when any man made a sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in boiling pot with a flesh hook and three teeth in his hand, and he struck into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, in other words, give all of the sacrifice, and then take as much as your soul desires, then he would answer him, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. The priests were taking far more than they were supposed to. They were demanding of the sacrifice to the Lord that they get. Now, the people were to take care of the priests, but these guys were going overboard. They were demanding too much. And then it goes on, it says in verse 17, Wherefore the sin of the young men, that is Hophni and Phinehas, was what? It's very great before the Lord, for men came to the point that they abhorred or they were not, they were not this would be like communion. 
not respecting the communion, the, the, Sarah, the, the implication, not respecting, and they were abhorring. And some, some think it's the idea that these men were disrespecting. Other interpreters say, maybe it's referring to the crowd, that they came to the point that they said, I want nothing to do with going to worship because of the corruption. In the Hebrew, it's kind of uh, a debate of which one of those two it is. But both of them are what's happening. The priests were not... Were not um, looking at the sacrifice as something very special and the people were being turned off to sacrifice. So it was dark days. And then we have in chapter 4 that the glory of the Lord departs. In chapter 4, they, it's a battle that takes place. And remember in the midst of the battle, the Jews carry one special piece of furniture out to the battlefront. Do you remember what it was? The Ark of the Covenant. And it's supposed to stay in the tabernacle. But they thought if they take the Ark of the Covenant with them to battle... Yeah, it's their lucky charm. It's, they're going to win the battle. And they go to battle, and what happens to the Ark of Covenant? It gets, it, gets, it gets captured by the Philistines. And they lose it. And he makes the statement, the glory of the Lord has departed. God's blessing. God is so fed up at this point with these people. And then we've also talked about it already at the end of the book of Judges. We've heard about the division which happened in the first half. But as you go through the book of Judges, Ephraim multiple times was there. Just, they were divided. The people were divided. And then, and then right before Samuel, the last judge is Samson. Did Samson leave the people at a state of revival? No. Did Samson leave them to a place of, of freedom from the Philistines? No. No. He, he, just, he fell flat on his face. He ends up with God's blessings, but long term he doesn't end up doing the full job because of we talk about what he did. And so when Samuel comes on the scene, he's inheriting a bad situation to work with. There's a lot of difficulties. And then on top of it, the enemy that's becoming their, their, their oppressor, the Philistines, are growing in power. In fact, the Philistines stay in power up until David becomes king. So they got another 40 years plus of the Philistines to deal with. So it's dark days. It's, it's a problem area. But then when you start reading the ministry of what happens with Samuel, it starts changing. It starts changing. Go to chapter 7. And I, let me just read this section, chapter 7, and watch the changes that start coming to the people in chapter 7. And it all plays together with these first few chapters as it's going through Samuel's influence. It says in verse 1, And the men of kirjath Jerem came and fetched up, that sounds so Pennsylvania Dutch, they fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass that while the ark abode in kirjath, kirjath Jerem, that the time was long for it was 20 years, years, and all the house of the Lord lamented, Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel and said, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. By the way, just, just to uh, remind you, the previous chapter is when they, the Philistines gave the Ark of the Covenant back to the Jews. Remember, because their God kept on falling down and they were plagued. And so they got rid of the Ark of the Covenant and the Jews got it and they put it in this man's house. David will eventually take it to the temple. So they got the Ark back and now he's trying to get their hearts back and he says, get rid of all your idols. And it says, look at verse 4. This is really important in context. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and served who? The Lord. What's your key word then that comes next? only. Okay. So they're getting revival. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you. 
And they gathered together at Mizpah and drew the water and poured it before the Lord. This is their sacrifice. And fasted on that day. And they said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together in Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against them with their armies. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samson, Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering wholly, completely. Nobody's getting their dibs on it. Unto the Lord. And he cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against the Israelites. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. And they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, smote them until they came to beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it at Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, here ha- here, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel, they were restored to Israel, and they gives the places. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hand. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all his days, and he went from year to year on the circuit riding preaching. And so you have the situation that they put away the false gods. This is incredible. They're listening to their new judge. Why? Because he's got their attention. Because of the character he is. If you go to chapter 9, it describes him as everybody knew he was a man of God. They didn't question him. It wasn't like, Samson, you're our judge, but we want to turn you over to the Philistines. Not Samuel. Samuel, they knew he was a godly individual. And so he's making impact, and this impact then lays that foundation for what's going to happen for Israel in the next few decades. And it's a wonderful story. It's a turnaround story. It's a revival story, which is a thrill and an excitement. And it's just a blessing. But here's where I want to go this evening. Before we explore deeply into his, Sam, Samuel's life and ministry over the next couple of weeks and then beyond the conference, is what was it in Samuel's life that really helped Samuel to help Israel? Is there anything? And I think there is. Because if you go to the beginning of 1 Samuel, it's the story doesn't start immediately with Samuel. If you go back to the very beginning of the book, the first couple chapters talk about who? Okay, his mom and dad. His mom and dad. They're the, they're the characters. Why does God spend so much time be in, in the story of Samuel talking about his parents? Well, that's an obvious. His parents had a tremendous impact upon his life. And they, as a result of having an impact upon his life, they influenced him so he was able to influence Israel. So we go back and we say, okay, let's, let's take, a few, take tonight, let's take next week, and let's talk a little bit about the parenting aspect and how that can influence, and especially what happens with his mom in the first setting of the, of the chapter. And she's not the only one because we get hints, and we'll talk about more next week, about his dad and how the hints are very clear here about what type of man he is. But let's look at just some of that's very, very clear. There's two things that his mom, whose name is Hannah, that she did. So we've got to go back to 1 Samuel, and let's pick up the story there and get the idea of, okay, what was it that they did to really make an impression and an impact upon his life? So we go all the way back to chapter 1, and here's what we find out. There was a certain man of Ray, and I can't say the whole word, of Mount Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, and it gives his family history. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had kids, but 
Hannah had no kids. It goes on, And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto Jehovah, the host of in Israel, the Lord of hosts. That's interesting. He's one of the few Jews that is keeping the annual feast as commanded. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were the priests there. And so he's going, even though there's corruption, he's still being faithful to the Lord. He's not letting anybody else influence him. He's going to do what's right. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina and his wife and to all the sons and daughters portions to give to the Lord. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion because she was his favorite. She's the, she's the one he really, really loved. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary, by the way, who's her adversary? It's not Satan. It's Penina. It's the second wife. But, and her adversary provoked her sore for to make her to fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. Nah, 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 nah. I have kids and you don't. And it got really severe. It says that they did this year after year. And she went up to the house of the Lord, that is Hannah and Penina, they go up with Elkanah. And so she, Penina, provoked her to the point that Hannah isn't able to do what? She's not able to eat. Okay? And it goes on, it says, Then Elkanah, her husband, says, Hannah, why do you let her bother you? Why are you crying so much? Why can't you eat? Why are you so grieved? Aren't I better to you than a whole bunch of boys anyway? Which, by the way, the answer in the original is that he is. He's really treating her well. So Hannah rose up. She can't even eat the supper, the celebration supper. She rose up after they had eaten and after they had drunk. And the high priest, that's Eli, sat by the seat by the post of the temple of the door. And she was in bitterness of soul and she prays unto the Lord and wept sore. What does she do? First thing she does, she prays. And we get a whole bunch of information that she is praying. She is praying because, as we already said, and we've already read, her husband and her are godly individuals. He loves her dearly, but she isn't bearing him children. She feels guilty. She feels terrible about that. She wants to give him children. And this is going on year after year. And she's discouraged. She's weeping. She's, it says in bitterness of spirit. We, we read that whole part. And her husband's trying to comfort her, but Penina's just grinding it down on her neck, you know, rubbing, the, rubbing her, you know, the whole thing with her heels, making her feel horrible, horrible. And so she comes to a festival, and she, she's just brokenhearted. So she goes to prayer, and she asks God for just one thing. What is it? Yeah, a male child. Give me a male child. And she's very clear about it. I want a male child. Don't take offense, ladies, but she wants a male child. Okay, at this moment. She prays for a male child. And what strikes me is this, is this is at a time when a lot of people don't even want to worship Jehovah. She's there worshiping. A lot of people don't think God even cares for them. Do you remember back in the book, book of Judges at the very beginning when we first started the series, the first message, that the people blame God for their problems instead of taking responsibility? Why have you let this happen? And she is in great distress, but she doesn't blame God. She believes that God still cares. She's not angry with God. She believes he's a caring God. And so in such bitterness of spirit, she runs to the Lord, not away from the Lord. Now that's commendable. Because when we face trials and we face troubles, if we're not careful, our spirit can come, become to the point where we say, well, God doesn't care, and we turn against God. She doesn't. Even though everybody else is, as a whole is against God, and even the priests don't even seem to care about God, she's going to God. She's going to God in prayer in the middle of her trials. So she's obviously a woman of faith. And by virtue of that, so is her husband. 
So when she prays, and here's the description of her prayer that's very, very important in the text. That it goes on and says how she prayed. Look at verse 11. She vows a vow and says, O Lord of hosts, if you will, indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me, and not forget thy handmaid. But will you give this handmaid a male child, that I will give him unto you the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli, who has been sitting at the door watching her, he marked her mouth. He's noticing something about her, her lips. And it goes on. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, and only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. And again, you have to understand culture. There was a day in this world, there was a day when people, if they didn't read out loud, they were considered to be insane or drunk. You and I are insane and drunk an awful lot. Okay. By the way, just, just, isn't it true about left-handed people? There was a time in this world that left-handed people were considered to be out of their mind. And so there was, you know, some left-handed people were, they were put in institutions because they were left-handed. And so cultures have changed. We're very grateful for that. But here's living in a culture where you don't pray this way. In fact, you don't read this way. That even carried into the New Testament. Remember the story in Acts chapter 8? When the, um, when the Ethiopian eunuch is sitting at the back of the chariot and he is reading out loud from the book of Isaiah and then... Um, Philip comes up and says, do you understand what you read? How does he know what he's reading? Because that's the way everything was done. Her praying quietly indicates several things to us. It indicates that when she prayed, she prayed sincerely. So when she's praying, she's praying under this great duress. It's very, she's weeping bitterly, verse 10. She's just moved in her prayer, and she doesn't care what people think. I'm praying to God, it's between me and God, and I don't care if I'm not praying the right words that somebody doesn't like or the right way that somebody doesn't like. I am going to be praying to the Lord because it's me and him. And she's very focused on it. And she makes a comment when the priest says, What's wrong with you, woman? Are you drunk? She answers, and this is an insightful answer, verse 15. No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But watch how she describes it. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And she is just laying it out there before God. Just very, very sincere in her prayer. And just focused that way. Something else about her prayer. It's very submissive. Tremendous submission. What word in the prayer that I read, there's one word in verse 11. Is that the prayer itself? Yeah. What word, there's a couple of them that show up. In, she, in her description of herself, what word does she keep using? Okay. Do you see that? That idea of a servant or a handmaid? She uses it three times. Re repetition is indicating that this was something that was really focused on her mind. Because her prayer wasn't habitual and you know, canned prayer that you just kind of repeat because your brain is, uh, is disengaged. She's praying and saying, I am your servant, I am your servant, I am your handmaid. And when she prays, if you caught this, she didn't say, do this for me. She says, if you would. If you would. Okay, which means that she, this is something that's very dear to her, but she's making it clear, if you will indeed look upon me, please, please. It's the type of prayer that says, not my will, but thine be done. Yeah, she's praying it. This is exactly what in the New Testament we have to keep on reminding ourselves. That in the New Testament we have those promises that God will answer our prayers. But sometimes we forget, now wait a minute, when we pray, we're supposed to pray this way. This is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything, 
It doesn't stop there. There's more to the verse. If we ask anything according to his will. That's very important. Other passages say, if you ask anything in my... Do you remember? In my name. That, the same concept. Something that would honor me. Something that is pleasing. Not just, okay, you need to do this, God, because I'm asking. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have petitions. But again, he hears us if we ask in his name or according to his will. And so she's praying that way. And she's praying when she prays. We said that she's sincere, she's submissive, she is selfless. Now, the reason I say that may sound odd to you because she's praying, please give me a boy, give me a boy. She's got empty arms. She wants her arms filled. Some of you understand exactly what she's, she's experiencing, just the agony of a childlessness at this time in her life. And she prays, and I want to remind you that sometimes we are told that when we ask, we ask amiss because we ask to basically consume it upon our own lust. It's, it's only for, this is what I want, not what I want, not your will be done. That's not the way she prays. That is not what's happening in this text. Because it's very clear that though she's praying for something she desires, what does she put with this prayer? I really want a son so that I can do what with this son? Give him to you. This is a selfless prayer. Our nation needs revival. They need somebody to lead them. I want my son to be used by you. So I'm praying for a son, but I'm going to give him back to you. He's going to be dedicated to you. He's going to be to the point that he is going to take even the signs of a Nazarite so that he can have a public influence because the last guy who had the vow of the Nazarite who was in a public scene, he didn't follow through. Okay, everybody knew he had long hair as a Nazarite. He was dedicated, but he was not the best example. My son, I want you to have my son. And you're going to get him from early on. And I'm going to dedicate him to you. And so God answers her prayer. The story goes on. We'll come back to that thought in a moment. But we read in verse 20, Wherefore it came to pass that a time was come about after, after that, that she conceived, that she bare a son. She calls his name Samuel, or God hears, because I've asked him of the Lord. And then it goes on how they go up and they sacrifice. But she keeps the boy home for a period of time until she weans him. That is up until about three years of age in that culture, maybe a little bit more. But then what she does is she praises and the story talks about how she takes the boy to the temple, to the, to the tabernacle, and she's going to drop the boy off. And when she drops the boy off, we read what she says. Not only does she pray, but she praises, chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, look, at this is what she prays at that moment, or praises. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside you. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. It's almost as if she, in her praise, she's talking to the people around her. Don't be so arrogant. Do not do that which is right in your own eyes. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. The, bow, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumble are girded with strength. They that, are full, that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. Going back and forth, God has helped those who are depending upon him. God is taking down those who are proud and arrogant. The Lord kills, the Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave, he brings up. The Lord 
makes the poor, makes, makes the rich. He brings low, he lifts up. He raises up the poor out of the dust. He lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed or Messiah. That's her praise. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, just dissect it for a second. You know, that she is giving praise here at this moment. It's so important. Praise is so important. Just stop and think. Mom and dad, okay, we want our kids to have the right attitude towards authorities. But if we're tearing down our parents, the kids don't want to spend time with those people that they've heard so much evil about. You know, if you and I are critical and just complaining and we say to our kids, you, you know, you're supposed to respect authority, but if we're not doing that in the simple ways, if we say, okay, and complain, you know, about how church is such an intrusion into the busyness of our life, then what do we expect our kids to think? Are they going to profit from these things? If all of a sudden we're the reactionaries to every trial that comes along and we just, we're so morose and we're so discouraged, then, wait a minute, they're going to pick up on that attitude that God doesn't care, God isn't good to me. And so attitude is really, really, really important from studying the Bible, from prayer to everything. And she is laying it out there. And she is saying, and by the way, what my point is, praise in your and my life impacts our kids. Our attitude of praise is so important. And so what happens in her life is she gives the praise and the catch in looking at this is this is important. The moment that she does, look at the timing. It is at that moment where she is bringing her boy and she is dedicating her boy, three, four years old. She is giving her son to the temple and she's going to walk away. She's going to leave him there and see him once a year or maybe twice a year. And she's giving up her son for that moment and she's praising God at this moment. She is giving God the glory when she is going through this moment and she is saying, God is so wonderful, God is so great, and God is so holy. Wow, her son is going to remember this. Okay? Can kids remember and be impacted by parents in a short period of time? Jochebed did it for Moses. Hannah does it for Samuel. They make a tremendous impact. And this is at a time when most of the Jews are walking away. In fact, do you remember in the book of Ruth, it starts off and it's talking about the same time period. And in the land there was a famine. And what is, what is the whole Ruth's relatives that she ends up marrying into? What did they do when the famine was in land? They left and they went to Moab. So this is a time when there's a lot of things going on. And she praises God, and when she's praising, she's talking about his provisions, his protection. She's praising, and she's very clear. He's sovereign. He lifts up, he tears down. He lifts up, he tears down. How God is keeping his promises, and she's going through and saying all these things. And this is a time when, if you remember, the Jews themselves, they're not so good. And she's just declaring, God is going to judge the wicked, that includes you, and God's going to bless those who are doing righteous, the few of us. And by the way, it's a time when the Jews are going through great difficulty. And she is saying, we're still going to, we need to praise God, praise God, praise God. He is so, so, so magnificent. You know, this whole attitude, again, I remind you, praise is important for impacting your family. It is just tremendous that you display a confidence in God and a praising spirit. I should add to this, this whole idea. Her praise is that idea that God will be faithful to me and to those who are faithful. She makes that comment in chapter, in verse 9, that he will keep the feet. 
He'll keep you solid. Remember she calls him the rock earlier in that text? And then she ends up, and this is the part that really, really impresses me. She's talking about his future promises. He's going to bring the Messiah. He's going to bring the king. And she's saying, you know, in the middle of our evil days when things are so um, unstable, remember there's a kingdom coming. There's a kingdom coming. And it just reminds me that Jesus talking to his disciples. In a moment when they feel like everything in the world is crumbling round about them, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he goes on and talks about the future. Heaven, the, pre- the presence of the Spirit. Well, this is what she's doing. In her praise, when there is no king in the land, where they don't even look like they have the land to themselves, she is saying God is going to keep his promises to us. Praise, praise, praise. Praise in the middle of difficulties. Praise in the middle of problems. Praise and just, she's just going on and giving God the praise and the glory. But it just, it really strikes me that she is praising God when her arms are empty again. Think with me. You go back just three, four years. Was she in bitterness of her, probably should add another year to that. Was she in bitterness and in agony because of empty arms? Right? Yeah? Now we advance four or five years later, her arms are going to be empty. She's going home without a child. And she is praising God. Tremendous. Tremendous situation. Now you might say, yeah, 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 yeah. But she ends up having other kids, which she does. But I want to remind you a couple of thoughts. Don't, don't, don't diminish discount the feelings she could have when she walks away as a mother leaving her child there. Well, you know, it's not that bad. She has other kids to watch. Not at this moment she doesn't. The text is real clear about that. She doesn't have the kids until after she gives up Samuel. And as well, let's just be honest, giving up a child, no matter if you have another 20 at home, that one child's still precious, amen? So here she is, and so she is giving up, and the text makes it clear, after this is when she has other children. So she doesn't have cribs full at home to go to. She is leaving her one and only child with praising in her heart. She's a godly woman. There's just no doubt about it. This is a really godly woman. That she has become more godly or godlier in the last few years. How God has changed her heart. How God has brought her to the point that she can face this moment with resolve, with determination, and not back away from her vow. And say, God, you are good. You are great. You are wonderful. And I'm putting my son in your hands. Tremendous tremendous. This woman who is given in this moment that she is saying, I'm, going, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to honor you. Now, let's make these observations. You should never, ever underestimate you as a parent in your prayer life and in your praise life how it can impact your kids, even if you have few days. And those of you with the little kids, I, I heard this years ago, and I thought, yeah, yeah, you're an old man speaking. Now I'm the old man speaking. Those few years you have your kids are going to pass so quickly. It'll be like you blinked and said, where did all the time go? Where did those 18, 19, 20 years, they're gone. Do take advantage of the moments. Do not say it in your heart, I'll put off the prayer. I'll put off the praising and I'll wait until later. 
you know, when I have more time. I'm just really busy with the kids right now, you know, getting them off to school, going over the homework, taking care of It's such a busy time, I'll do it later. Later may never come, and later may be too late. By the time you say, okay, I need to be doing this. I need to be focusing more on prayer and praising to impact my kids. So the message of this is very simple. If we just stop here, which we're going to, and just challenge our own hearts, here would be the challenge that I'd give to you. Moms and dads, would you do what Hannah did? Would you devote yourself to praying for your kids fervently, not just for the normal things, but for them to serve God? For them to be godly and just say, I am going to become, over the next month, a prayer warrior for my kids. I'm going to take not my normal prayer time, I'm not, I'm not substituting that. I am going to take an extra 15 minutes several days a week, and I am going to f- pray for my kids. Or, let's add to it, our grandkids. And we're going to pray for them and pray for them and pray that God would use them. As we dedicate them to the Lord, as we give them to the Lord, our prayer would be, as parents and grandparents, this is going to be my focus. God, work in their hearts. God, save them if they're not saved. God, keep, get them revived if they're backslidden. God, if they're walking with you, keep them walking with you and pray for their spiritual protection. Pray for their growth in Christ. Pray that they are real. Pray that they are genuinely serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The impact of praying over the next few weeks could mean a big difference in their life and in the lives of the society that they will affect if the Lord tarries. They could be the next Samuel to really be used of God to bring many people to a saving knowledge of Christ. They could be the next great missionary. They could be the next great uh, teacher. They could be the next great church planter. They could be the next great businessman that is used by God in tremendous, tremendous passages and, and opportunities and ways of life. Pray for your kids. There's stories that I can just share with you that are multiple, but let me just pick a couple. You've heard this one before, George McCluskey. He lived a few generations back, and he determined as he got into his older years that he hadn't spent enough time praying for his kids. So he was going to start praying for his kids every day during the weekdays from 11 o'clock to noon, and he was going to pray for his kids and pray for their future kids that they would have. And the story goes this way, that this man prayed now for a few years, and he was praying for his kids as they went on. He had two daughters. They each married men who served the Lord in some full-time vocational ministry. These two daughters, they had five grandchildren between them. Okay? And one was a boy, four were girls. McCluskey kept on praying. They all, they, all of them, all five, grew up to serve the Lord in some way. Of those five grandchildren, each of them had children as well. The two oldest great-grandsons went off to college together. One became a preacher. The other one became a Christian counselor. Anybody know his name? You've heard it before. James Dobson. And he says, in my history, my family genealogy goes back to George McCluskey spending an hour a day praying for me before I was born by, by a generation or more. The impact... Let me share you another true story. story about another individual, another couple, that, that they were the same type of situation. They're, they were missionaries. Phil and Catherine Howard, they served the Lord in the Belgian gospel mission. They were asked to return to the States and take the leadership of what was called at that time Sunday School Times. They did. 
Their ministry changed, but they were still very missions-oriented. So what they did is they invited a lot of missionaries into their home. And their, their guest book there in their house had some missionary signatures that were from 40 different countries around the world, 24 different nationalities. They were hospitable people to the missionaries. And Catherine, the, the wife, she said she, just, she was very burdened to pray for missions. I, I quote what she wrote. A verse kept going through my head over and over, Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. I vowed. I vowed to pray for missionaries and for more missionaries to go to the field. But one day the thought struck me, Whose children are you asking God to send to the field? I backed away from the implications. It was just, you know, it was just too hard to think that I pray for my own kids to leave and go around the world. But finally, I was willing to pray that God would send my children if that was his will for them to go to the mission field. In the years that followed, each of their six children entered into some type of vocational ministry with missions mind in mind. Phil Jr. and his wife went to the Canadian Northwest Territory to plant churches. Dave went to Costa Rica. Virginia went to Sulu Sea in the Philippines ministering to remote villagers. Tom went with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and their other daughter, Elizabeth, went to Ecuador. Elizabeth in Ecuador. Anybody know who her husband was? Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. And we all know his story, right? One of those few that was martyred, and then she had a tremendous ministry afterwards. Elizabeth Elliott's don't just happen. Hudson Taylor's don't just happen. Samuel's don't just happen. There is usually a mom, a dad, a grandma, a grandpa who are praying for them to be used in a mighty way before the Lord. My challenge to you is to pray this way as a parent. To set aside and say, as a grandparent, that we are going to pray this way. Now, let me expand this before I close. There's several of you who aren't, aren't parenting. Would you be willing to pray for the youth in our church a couple times a week? Fifteen extra minutes, a couple times a week, pray for the kids in the church, the teens in the church, that God would use them, move them, that if, they, if during the missions month, if God would have them to be a missionary, they would hearken. And by the way, can I ask you to do this? For us parents and grandparents, pray that we would surrender our kids to the will of God and not hold them back. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for the church that way? We know that God hears us if we pray according to his will. Folk, I don't think anything I'm suggesting you pray about, I don't think any of it goes against his will. I think God wants our kids to be godly. God wants to use our kids. God wants to send them to different places and make a difference. Let's pray. Let's pray. And let's pray some more.